This morning, as you might have noticed from the bulletin and the video, we're going to take a brief um, pause from our study together through the Gospel of Mark this year in order to commemorate uh, the 502nd anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, To my chagrin, uh, my predecessor, Gary, missed the 500th anniversary two years ago, but I figure it's better late than never. Um, And so... Before we go on, though, I also want to comment again on, on the kids being in here with us. This is not only Reformation Sunday, but it's Family Sunday. And so, kids, where are you guys at? Let's try that again. Kids, where are you guys at? Oh, my gosh. All right, parents, wake them up. Um, this is bad news if we're 30 seconds in and they're already asleep. Um, Parents, if, you're, if you are new here, we believe here at West Hills that it's important for uh, kids to get programming that's specifically designed and, and tailored to connect with them on their level. And so that's what we do here, three out of four Sundays. But we also believe it's vitally important uh, for families to worship together. And so at least once a month we do that. We don't want our children's spiritual growth to simply be outsourced to someone else at the other wing of the building. We want our kids to know that they are every bit as much a part of the church as we are. Kids, do you all know that this is your church too? You know that? Good. Um, So kids, let me talk to you all for a minute. On the one hand, uh, part of this morning's message might be a little difficult for you all. How many of you all like history, kids? I see a few hands. Good for you. Good for you. I hated history when I was your age. Um, I was way too self-absorbed. I didn't care about the people around me, much less dead people in books. Um, So good for you if you care about history. Uh, This morning, we're going to be learning about some really, really important history. In fact, the Protestant Reformation may be arguably the most important historical event in nearly the last 2,000 years of history since Jesus. And the reason that the Reformation was so important was that as we just heard in the video, Martin Luther discovered this, this central truth of Scripture and its massive significance that changed not only his life, but changed the world forever. That's why The Reformation was so important. And so we should really say that Luther didn't discover uh, this truth, as the video said, but rather he recovered it because Luther didn't uncover anything new at all. He just dusted off a truth that had been buried under layers and layers, uh, as we're going to see, of junk in the church This is the central truth of all of Scripture. The Bible is really just one unifying, overarching story that tells one central message. And in the church, we call that message the gospel. That's what the Reformation recovered for us. Gospel means good news. And here is the good news about the good news. Kids and adults, that even though the Bible is so deep and so complex that you can be far smarter than me, Pastor Will, and far smarter even than Martin Luther, and study it all your life, and still never fully understand all the wonderful mysteries that God has included in his word for us. And yet, at the same time, the central truth of the gospel is so simple and so basic that my three-year-old daughter can understand it. And that means you can too, because we only let kids four and up in here in the service with us. She's pretty smart, though. 
And if you can understand this truth, and more importantly, if you can receive it, Jesus says we have to receive, we have to have faith like a child in order to get into heaven. Kids and adults, if you can believe this good news about Jesus, then you can be saved and enjoy eternal life with him in heaven forever. That's the good news. The Bible says, Romans 1.16, that the gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe. So, what is this good news that's so central to our faith and our eternal fate? In one sentence, here's how I've tried to sum it up for you. The gospel is the good news that even though you and I are sinners who deserve to be rejected by a perfect and just God, that in his mercy, God has made a way for sinners to be restored to a loving relationship with him because of what his son Jesus has done for us. That's the gospel. It's the good news of hope and salvation from sin through Jesus for all who would simply believe. But for five centuries, sorry, five centuries ago, for about 10 centuries, the church had over time all but forgotten the gospel. And the Protestant Reformation was an attempt at just that, a protest to reform the church, the Roman Catholic Church, the only church that existed at the time. Luther, Martin Luther was a Catholic monk. He had no desire to overthrow the church or start a new denomination. He simply wanted to reform the church, but much like the chief priest in the Sanhedrin who had killed Jesus 1,500 years prior in his day, these 16th century popes and bishops rather enjoyed the corrupt system that they had created for their own selfish gain. It was working for them, and so instead of repenting and reforming, they excommunicated Luther. They cast him out of the church, and they exterminated many of his contemporaries, his fellow reformers, who threatened their power. The Catholic Church declared their protesting to be a crime punishable by death, and so many of the reformers willingly gave their lives rather than renounce the truth of the gospel. And the way that they summarized it is what we refer to today as the five solas of the Reformation. Sola is a Latin word that means alone or only. So much of what was wrong with the Roman Catholic Church of that day was that it had buried the gospel under a heap of unbiblical doctrines and practices. And the Reformation was an effort to strip all of that junk away that had come to obscure the gospel over the centuries and recover the pure, undefiled, biblical core of Christianity. The basics, you might say. There's five of them. In basketball, it's dribble, pass, shoot, defend. In volleyball, it's bump, set, spike, block. You add anything to that, you take anything away from that, and all of a sudden, you've per- corrupted, perverted a pure sport. You're playing some other game. You're not playing basketball, volleyball anymore. And so let's unpack these five solas of the gospel. First, let's pray. Father, we invite your spirit now to be our guide as we study and examine, expound, exposit your word together this morning. Father, we thank you We've already confessed and prayed this morning that you have not left us in the dark when it comes to salvation. 
Father, we shudder to think at the church going centuries and centuries obscuring the gospel. We thank you this morning for all the things that we take for granted, for literacy, for the fact that for translations of the Bible, for the Bibles that sit on our shelves and all too often collect dust, sit in our pockets while we check Facebook instead. And Father, give us a passion this morning for your word. God, we need your guidance. Send your Holy Spirit to bless the study, interpretation, and application of your word. And Father, if you would see fit to call even one sinner to yourself this morning through the preaching of your word. God, we want to pray boldly that you would do that this morning. That's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, before we look at sola number one, we should say the context, what wasn't debated in the 16th century church, but is highly controversial in our 21st century world today is the starting assumption that we are sinners who need saving in the first place. Luther and the Pope agreed on that. They just disagreed on how that salvation occurred. But the basic premise that we need saving from ourselves, that our sin separates us from a holy, perfect God, no one was disputing that. And yet today, our culture obscures that truth our culture indoctrinates us to believe the exact opposite message that I don't need saving from myself. I need to indulge myself. There's nothing wrong with me. If I think it, if I feel it, if I believe it, then it must be good and right and true. But God's word says the wages of sin is death. God's word teaches that there is a God who lovingly gives us a moral standard to live by. I wouldn't be a loving parent if I didn't care how my daughter acted. Hug your mom, spit in her face. What's the difference? No, God loves us too much to let us live like that. He calls us to a life of obedience because he knows it's good for us. And yet, we fall short. And the Bible calls this sin, missing the mark that a loving God desires for us. And the wages of our sin. What our sin rightfully earns us is death. The death of our relationship with a holy, perfect God who can't have any part of sin. God is life. He's the author, the creator, the sustainer of life. In him we live and move and have our being. And so to reject God is to reject life and to choose the opposite, namely death. Ephesians 2 summarizes our situation well, and for the sake of time, I'm going to skip some of the passages I've listed in your bulletin for you. You can go look them up later on your own. But Ephesians 2 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice, again, the Bible describes our natural state in the exact opposite way of our culture today. We are naturally children of wrath. That is, children who rightfully deserve a heavenly Father's wrath. It's not just that God is disappointed by our sin. It's not just that God is upset by our sin, saddened by our sin. God hates 
our sin. And he hates it because he loves us. Verse 4, if you keep reading in Ephesians 2, because of the great love with which he loved us. Love means wanting the best for someone. And God knows how much our sin wrecks our lives. And as a good heavenly father, he wants so much better for us. He created us for better. He created us for worship. The highest aim of all, to bring him glory. But in our sin, we worship ourselves instead, and so we need saving. But how does that salvation happen? Well, Luther said, for starters, number one, salvation comes in accordance with Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura. That was the rally cry of the Reformation. Scripture alone. And that's where we have to start, because that's the whole reason the 16th century church had devolved into the corrupted system that it had. It was because the church had lost its moorings. All the other four solas ultimately hinge on this one because they're all grounded, found in Scripture. You let go of the objective truth of Scripture, of the Word of God, as your ultimate source of authority. Then someone else has to replace him as the authority. And so the Pope said, I'll do it. And the church declared itself, its leaders, and its traditions to be equally authoritative as God's word. The Pope's interpretation of the Bible became just as important as the Bible itself. A priest's application of Scripture became just as important as Scripture itself. So when the Bible says something like, God loves a cheerful giver, and the church interprets that as you have to give half your weekly paycheck to the church or else your eternal soul will be damned, then that became the final authoritative word on the matter. And it helped that the only copies of the Bible that the church allowed were held in the churches by the priest, written in Latin, a language that had been dead for over a thousand years, preached in Latin in their masses so that no one else could understand because, heaven forbid, people get a hold of the Bible and read it for themselves in their own language, they might decide to give less than half their paycheck. And so the church had a vested interest in keeping people in the dark. But Luther was an insider. Right? Luther was a monk. He was a whistleblower. And he read 1 Peter 2 for himself, and he realized Christianity is supposed to be a priesthood of all believers. Luther read Mark, Mark 10. The rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. These priests and popes weren't doing a lot of serving. 2 Timothy 4, 2, church leaders are called to serve God's people his word. Preach the word. Why? Well, because it's his word. 2 Timothy 3, because the Bible describes itself as the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation comes only through the illuminating light of God's word. That's exactly what the Bible is. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by God, and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. Scripture is complete. It's sufficient. It lacks nothing that we need for eternal life. And so Luther read 2 Peter 1 and realized that scripture isn't mere interpretation. This is the inspired word of God. Luther famously concluded at the Diet of Worms in 1521 that unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and the councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. 
And for that statement, for claiming that Scripture was his only authority, not the church, Luther was excommunicated, cast out of the church. Friends, the situation really hasn't changed all that much in 500 years, has it? I mean, if you walk into any Roman Catholic mass in town right now and simply ask around, hey, I'm just curious, why do you do that thing with the the signing of the cross? Why do you you do the thing with the, the prayer beads? Why do you do the thing with lighting the candles? Virtually everything that takes place during the mass, why are you doing that? The answer will almost certainly be, it's tradition. It's what we've always done. The priest told me to. Church tradition is still just as important as the scriptures. Let's bring it a little closer to home, though, for us as Protestants. How many Protestant churches today put their own dogma above scripture? If the agenda is open and affirming, if what is most important is that everyone here feel really good about themselves, no matter what, instead of feeling really convicted about my sin and my need for a savior, regardless of whatever my particular sin struggle might be. If that's your agenda, then you've really resigned yourself to taking a pair of scissors to massive chunks of the Bible that don't fit with your theological presuppositions. At the end of the day, friends, we all have to decide what is going to be our ultimately authoritative final word on the matter. Is it going to be culture? Is it going to be my my gut? I don't know. That passage of the Bible really just, it doesn't sit right with me. Well, guess what? If it's God's word and you and I are not God, in fact, we're sinners, then that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? That lots of stuff in the Bible wouldn't sit right with us. Friends, we thank God this morning for his word for objective truth, that God has not left us in the dark to try and figure out the truth on our own. Thank God for his church, for this place where we can come together with brothers and sisters centered around the word of God. That is what brings us together here. Amen? Number two, Luther recovered the truth that salvation comes by grace alone. Because of its stance that the church possessed the same authority as Scripture. Roman Catholicism claimed that salvation was a gift not just from a loving, merciful God, but that it was a gift from the church as well. The church was the arbiter of salvation. Salvation for the church had become not so much a gift as a hot commodity to be bartered and sold at top dollar because after all, what price wouldn't you pay for your eternal fate? for a ticket into heaven. And only the church was selling those tickets. It had a monopoly on heaven. 76 years before Luther arrived on the scene, the Council of Florence declared the most holy Roman church firmly believes, professes, and preaches that none of those existing outside the Catholic church can have a share in life eternal. Extra ecclesium nulla salus. There is no salvation outside the church. But then Luther started reading scripture for himself, and he couldn't find that passage anywhere in the Bible. 
What he did find was Romans 3. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We are justified. We are declared innocent of our sins, acquitted of all wrongdoing and its penalty. Death by his grace given freely as a gift to be received through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption, he bought us back. We don't have to buy, purchase salvation because he's already purchased it for us at the highest cost of all, the precious blood of his son. Because as David says in Psalm 51, 4, against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. So I don't need the church's pardon. I need God's forgiveness My sin isn't against the church. That's not the relational rift that has been caused here. So I don't need a priest to tell me how many Hail Marys I need to say because I don't owe the priest anything. I need God's forgiveness. I need reconciliation with God. That's what Luther came to realize. Only God can forgive. The Pope can only reassure people that God will do this. That's thesis number six of Luther's famous 95 critiques of the church that he nailed to the cathedral door at Wittenberg that kicked off the whole protest. Luther had the audacity to claim that it is wrong to think that papal pardons have the power to absolve all sin because Luther read it for himself in Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, not the Pope, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And Luther declared, just as Paul did there in Ephesians 2, that this grace, number three, comes only through Christ, through Christ alone, not through the vicarious merits of the saints. See, the church had devised this whole system for doling out salvation that was based on this sort of bizarre line of reasoning that there were a few people, mainly former popes and bishops, it was kind of like a good old boys club, where I beatify the pope before me with sort of the understanding that once I die, the new pope's job is to pronounce me a saint officially. And the idea was there were these few people, these saints, who had lived really, really good lives, such good lives that by the end they had excess good deeds or merits stored up beyond those that they needed to get into heaven for themselves. There were extra, and so there was this invisible spiritual treasure chest of merits that the church presided over and had the authority to bestow on others, the rest of us sinners, whose own merits didn't add up who aren't good enough to get into heaven on our own merit. And so it was out of this sort of weird theology that the concept of purgatory was born. The the Catholic Church invented the idea of purgatory to explain where Christians who were sinners and thus couldn't be admitted straight into heaven because heaven is a perfect place for perfect people, and yet if the person was still, for the most part, pretty good, a faithful Catholic, then she couldn't go to hell either. And so the church invented this in-between place for souls to go and burn off all their imperfections, pay for their earthly sins, and be purified in order to get into heaven. But once again, Luther 
just couldn't find anything about purgatory in Scripture. And so his thesis number 16 corrected the church's teaching that what they called purgatory was in fact really hell. And John Calvin, the second most important reformer, went even further. Calvin called purgatory a deadly fiction of Satan, which nullifies the cross of Christ, inflicts unbearable contempt upon God's mercy, and overturns and destroys our faith. For what means this purgatory of theirs but that satisfaction for sins is paid by the souls of the dead themselves? But if it is perfectly clear that the blood of Christ is the sole satisfaction for sins of believers, the sole expiation, the sole purgation, what remains but to say that purgatory is simply a dreadful blasphemy against Christ? If Christ is truly sufficient for salvation, who needs purgatory? Luther further undermined the idea of relics. A relic was something that was supposedly belonged to a deceased saint, the femur of John the Baptist, the hairbrush of Pope Boniface VIII, and the church claimed that these objects had magical, saving powers. Luther called them evil in concept. Because once again, none of these ideas are found anywhere in Scripture. Instead, what Luther read plainly for himself in the Bible was Hebrews 9.12, that Christ entered once and for all into the holy places by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus' sacrificial, atoning death on the cross in our place was sufficient. Jesus meant it when he said it is finished. Our eternal redemption, secure, seated in heaven, with him. We don't have to wait and stress and hope and pray that our combination of good works and purchased merits of other saints and holiness by osmosis from their relics and paying the rest of our remaining balance for ourselves in purgatory, all of that is a direct offense to the gospel truth that salvation is secure in Christ. Luther discovered that the theological distortions of the 16th century church were really no different than the first century ones that Paul had to deal with. In Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul had written to warn the church against false teachers who were claiming that Jesus wasn't enough for salvation. They were claiming that they had to trust in Jesus and be circumcised. Jesus and observance to the Old Testament law. And Paul replied, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. In other words, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. The gospel is that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You try and add anything to Jesus and you totally undermine the sufficiency of his cross. Galatians 2.21, Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. His death was in vain. 2 Corinthians 5.17-18, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's done. It's finished. Salvation can't be undone any more than a person can be unborn. You've been reborn. A new creation. 
And so verse 18, all of this is from God, not the church, not the saints, not Mary, not the Pope, not your works, not your time in purgatory. It's from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Past tense, reconciled, it's done. Not because of our works, not because our our deeds are sufficient, but because Christ's work on our behalf was. Therefore, ours is no longer a weak and shaky, unsturdy, uncertain faith, but a bold and confident assurance, like we sang this morning, Jesus, firm foundation, that Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because there's nothing left to be paid. The debt is paid in full. Our, uh, no outstanding guilt, no leftover balance to be paid off in purgatory. It's paid in full by Jesus Christ. That's good news this morning, friends. We're all guilty of of slipping back into this works righteousness kind of mindset. Again, forget about the 16th century church for a second. What about you? We're all guilty of slipping back into this. It's good news this morning that we don't have to wait. We don't have to guess. We don't have to be unsure. We can know, take it to the bank, that our salvation has been purchased because it was purchased by Jesus, not by anything we've done. So I want to ask you this morning, adults, kids, Whether you live 94 years, 34, some of you are four. When your time comes and you stand before the Lord and he asks you, why should I let you into heaven? How are you going to respond? How will you respond? Will you say because I was a pretty good person? Will you say because I went to church most Sundays? Will you say because I was baptized? Will you say because my mom and dad believed in Jesus? What will you say? I know how I'm responding. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. In Christ alone, my hope is found. Jesus' firm foundation. And because our salvation was purchased by Christ alone, all we have to do, friends, all we can do is simply, number four, receive salvation as a free gift in faith alone. Sola fide, faith alone. This whole corrupted system of merits, the need to earn your way to heaven, proved to be quite lucrative to the church because as we said most people couldn't afford uh, on their own spiritual merit their way into heaven 
And so that's where the church's treasure chest of the saints' excess merits came in handy. And so the church began selling these extra merits as tickets. They were literally uh, slips of paper called indulgences that the church sold people that, that had written on them, this buys you a day out of purgatory. You get into heaven a day, a day sooner. And you could buy them not only for yourself, but for your deceased loved ones as well, who had already passed away, who were currently anguishing in purgatory, paying off their sins, paying off their remaining balance. And that threw the marketplace for souls wide open to the church. You may remember the motto of the most famous indulgent salesman, Johann Tetzel, as soon as your coin in the church coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. The church got busy liberating plenty of souls because there were plenty of cathedrals to build and plenty of priests to send on vacation. But Luther pointed out once again that the whole idea of indulgences, the notion that you could purchase your salvation rather than simply receive it as a gift from God alone, amounted to telling God that his grace was insufficient, to telling Christ that his sacrifice was insufficient. And so Luther, in the face of the church, radically insisted that an indulgence will not save a man. Thesis number 21, that it is vain to rely on an indulgence to forgive your sins, that it's nonsense to teach that a dead soul in purgatory can be saved by money, that a man can be free of sin if he sincerely repents and indulgent, an indulgence isn't needed. Why? Because John 6, 28 and 29, what Jesus himself says, the crowd asked Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus, tell us. We've all been works righteousness people <laughs> since the beginning of time. We want to earn our own salvation. What must we do? Jesus, tell us what we got to do to get in. Jesus answered, this is the work of God. Get ready. Here's what you do that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work is to stop working. To admit that you can't work hard enough, that you can't do enough to earn heaven. And simply trust Jesus. That's the one thing you can do. It's the one thing you have to do. Surrender and trust Jesus. Admit that you are unable. Repent from your attempts to please God on your own merit. Even that is sin, and trust in Christ instead. Romans 3.28, we hold, Paul says, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 4.4 4, 4 and 5, now to the one who works, his wages are counted not as a gift, but as his due. Paul says if you work for it, it's not a gift. It's called a paycheck. And Paul says, trust me, you don't want the paycheck that your works earn you. Remember, it's death. But to the one who does not work, but who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. Romans 5, 1 and 2, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
by grace through faith in Christ alone. Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And finally, and most famously, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that we read already this morning in our confession, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. Lest anyone should boast, it's a gift, a free gift of God. And so I ask you again this morning, friends, who, what, what are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in? Amen. Who said that? God. Amen. God. Thank you, Dahlia. Lastly, why are you trusting him? For those of us who have come to recognize, man, it can't be on my merit. It's got to be on his merit. It's got to be through Christ. Why do we trust him? Is it for our own glory? Or do we realize that even our salvation is not first and foremost about us, friends, but ultimately, number five, all of this is for the glory of God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. The glory of God alone. The church in Luther's day was all about its own glory. It's all about its own flourishing, its own kingdom. And so Luther asked, hey, if the Pope can empty purgatory, why doesn't he do it out of love and not for the sake of miserable money with which to build a church? Do we have that slide, Greg? Luther asked, why doesn't the Pope, whose wealth is greater than the riches of the richest, Pope is the richest guy in the 16th century, why doesn't the Pope just build the Church of St. Peter's with his own money rather than with the money of poor believers. Because Luther studied the scriptures and came to understand that even our salvation isn't mostly about us, but about God receiving the glory and the honor and the praise that is due his name. Ephesians 1, in love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Why did he adopt us? Why did he predestine? Why did he choose us to be adopted members of his family? Despite our sinfulness, despite our unworthiness. Verse 12, it was so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. God gets glory by saving us undeserving, seemingly hopeless sinners like you and me by proving that his power is greater than our failures, by proving that his faithfulness is greater than our faithlessness, by proving that though our sins are many, his mercy is more. And the more broken we are, and the more broken we were before he came in and did it, and redeemed us, and made us whole, the more broken we were, the more power God displayed in rescuing us. And so the more glory he gets. And so church, as your sort of final application of this principle this morning, let's stop dressing it up, okay? Can we start wearing our spiritual sweatpants to church? 
Stop pretending we've got it all together in here and especially out there for the world. Don't shrink the cross of Jesus. If the cross is intended to bridge the gap between a holy, perfect God and a sinful, broken me, then any attempt on my part to clean it up, to to find some area of my life where I've got it enough together that I don't really need Jesus, just puts him out of a job, just shrinks the cross. I don't know about you, but I desperately need Jesus in every area of my life. So as for me and my house, we're going to lead with our brokenness. I'll do that up here every week in the pulpit. Let's do it in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. Let's lead with our brokenness because it's not about my glory. It's not about making sure that people know that I'm a really great guy. It's about making sure people know that I serve a really great God who saves really miserable sinners like me. According to Scripture alone, by His grace alone, through faith alone, all unto the glory of God alone. Let's pray.